1: It's the Wonky Show. We're talking graduate outcomes, renters reform and free speech again. It's all
0: coming up. There's a kind of seems to be a moral panic developing mm. about the shortage of places in elite higher education. And, that you know, the, actually there aren't going to be enough, enough places in the inverted commas top universities. And actually those kinds of data kind of push another narrative that actually think about not the institution but the quality of the course you're doing and, a, and actually that, that shortage isn't really something to worry about if you can find a program. Welcome to The Wokie Show, your weekly way into
1: this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wokie's Editor-in-Chief Mark Peach, and joining me to skim the HE policy waters this week are three fabulous guests as always. In Lancaster, it's Paul Ashrin Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster University. Paul, your highlight of the week,
0: please. Um, this week I've been helping the University of Sussex with their education and scholarship promotion applications, and there were just some really inspiring examples of scholarly educational leadership, so that was my highlight.
1: Nerd... Uh, and <laughs> in London, it's Alexis Brown, director of policy advocacy at our friends Happy. Alexis, your highlight of the week, please.
2: Um, I've been following up on a report that we did a couple weeks ago on uh, the student academic experience survey. Getting that data out to um, different institutions who want their own data and want to do their own thing with it, and that's been really fun.
1: More nerds, excellent. And deep in the southwest, no one knows exactly where it's David Kernhorn or DK to you and me. Uh, DK, you're hired for the week.
3: Well, I built a guitar fuzz pedal into a, into a small metal uh, chicken and then gigged it on Saturday night and it sounded fantastic.
1: Wow, well, I don't even know where to go from there. Uh, but let's start the week with Graduate Outcomes, a bunch of new data. Paul, lead us through it.
0: Yeah, so this is the release of the Graduate Outcomes survey from the um, graduates from 2019-2020 uh, and they were surveyed. Uh, 15 months after they graduated, looking at what they're doing now in terms of education, employment, unemployment, um, the relevance of their degree, um, for what they're doing now, how they feel about that, and also how they feel generally. um. My kind of sense of looking at this is really that it's completely overwhelming um, in terms of the amount of data there. They've got um, 375,000 completed responses, and it's really difficult to pull out any simple headlines. Generally, in terms of employment outcomes, not much has changed. The big change is in relation to increased levels of anxiety, particularly for those employed and those unemployed. What that means is unclear. I think it kind of raises, potentially raises some issues about how universities prepare their graduates for the world, but, but it's kind of hard to tell. And I think the main thing that comes across for me are the day dangers of the way, um, this data gets aggregated. So, um, DK did a really nice piece on wonky in relation to this. So first of all, what well, if you aggregate subjects to a high level, then. The kind of outcomes fall in the way you might expect but actually if you look at individual subjects there are some quite surprising findings. I think DK pointed out that computing graduates seem to be the most likely to be unemployed and similarly in relation to aggregation the madness of aggregating these outcomes at an institutional level. Um, But of course that's what lots of people want to do even though it's incredibly unhelpful in terms of telling us meaningful things about the outcomes of graduates education.
1: Uh, and, and just in case anyone's not been paying attention for the last uh, five years of HG policy, why do people want to aggregate it on an institutional level? Just, just humour me a second, Paul.
0: Um. Well, I, I guess there's two two main reasons for that. One is for league tables and to talk about the quality of particular institutions. But that's not just about league table. That's that's also about um, government policy and wanting to identify. Um, low value providers and to do it more at a provider level than an individual course level
1: yeah right okay got it dk you've been knee deep in this data um and i guess my first question is what is new about the sort of glut of it that's come out in
3: the last um the last few weeks so as you brightly hint, uh, this is a little bit like Christmas to me. I get a massive wadge of data to play with. I'm in my happy place with my headphones on, and the the world for that moment at least is um a pleasant one in which all is well. Uh now things about this um particular release, um the uh The response rate, remember this is a survey, it's not a population data like he's a student or Leo, is only about 50%. So we are getting details here on uh, 50% of what graduates are doing. Um, um, as Paul has pointed out, I've got a pile of stuff here on the site. Um, and in particular, um, my key thing was I was surprised how normal this all is. Because if you think about graduate outcomes, we started it, we did the first year, and then we had a year uh, that was actually conducted during the pandemic, the like uh, main part of the restrictions of the the pandemic. And then we had this year, which was graduates that literally uh, graduated into the pandemic. You'd think if you were going to, um designed three sets of external circumstances that would make a survey look really weird that these would be the three years that you would choose but uh it is we have got a normal emerging it is actually Possible and reasonable to compare to previous years. The changes you are seeing in the most cases are quite small. And that was the big thing that surprised me, uh, to be honest, just how normal it all was.
2: I mean, I think, first of all, it's a testament to our graduates that they've managed to weather such a tumultuous time so well and that things have been so consistent. Uh, I'm not surprised the graduates are feeling anxious. This chimes very well with what we found in uh, the Student Academic Experience Survey early this year, uh, that students were almost as anxious as they were last year, um, this year, even though the worst of the pandemic uh, has passed. If I'm right as well, um, graduates would have received this survey um, in September, November last year, which would have been before the cost of living crisis even hit. So I I, I guess I wonder whether they're feeling even more anxious now.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, Paul, um, does it Does that kind of chime with what you see in students that you interact with at Lancaster?
0: Um, I, I think certainly the kind of um, robustness of students in, in fact we 've been doing a project where we 'd started tracking chemistry and chemical engineering students through their undergraduate degrees, and we 're now in a second stage of that project um, tracking them through the first three years of their graduation. And, you know, there's a real sense in that data of this is a strange time, there is a sense of anxiety, but there's also a real sense of how studying for their degree has prepared them to engage with the world. So, so, so you know, yes, th- there's a sense of anxiety, there's something to keep an eye on there, but really what comes across from our research, but also from this data, is the value that students feel they get from the knowledge they engage with in their degrees.
1: I mean, we're talking, it's, it's obviously madness to aggregate on a, on an institutional level, but it's not going to stop,
3: um, ministers and regulators, is it, DK? It's absolutely not. I mean, this is, uh, the graduate outcomes data is built into the B3, um, regulatory, uh, requirements built into, uh, TEF. And, uh, we didn't quite get the terrible, uh, round of stories I was expecting from the press. I imagine they'll come as people dig into the data. But I mean, just to forestall those, I can give you a couple of um, fascinating institutional facts from the data. If you are eating uh, toast or drinking tea while listening, please put down those items now and you may drop them. So, uh, graduates at the University of Suffolk are more likely to be in a highly skilled role than graduates from Exeter. Um and, um, the graduates of the University of Cumbria are least likely in the whole sector to be unemployed in England. So that's a better rate of either employment or further study or other activity than Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, all the rest. Um, and there is a strange effect with specialist art courses in that specialist art courses, um, and art providers students are more likely to report that if they are in full-time work, then that is not um, meaningful uh, full-time work to them. Uh, if you want to find meaning in your work after graduates, the university for you is the University of Buckingham, apparently. Now, the, I s- say all this stuff with a huge bundle of um, caveats. Institutions, of course, are built up of a lot of different subject areas in differing proportions, and there is a subject effect on, on graduate outcomes. There's also a regional effect because um, graduates tend to come to uh, um, universities and kind of go out from universities, in many cases, into their local area, and local areas have different levels of um, graduate and other employment available. Um, we also need to think about the characteristics of students. Each uh, kind of uh, provider, each particular provider, in fact, will recruit students from a different range of backgrounds. And your background before HE has got a huge impact on your graduate outcome after your degree. Now, if I was designing a system of regulation, I would not be looking at outcomes data in terms of institution, just because there's so many things you need to control for. Even if you look at something uh, basic and obvious like response rate, then the, the um, proportion of graduates that complete the survey, uh, that ranges right the way from up to 80% from a few colleges, something like 70% at RVC, uh, places like that. Right the way down in a few colleges, we're at 0% or uh, 5%. If you want a largest HE provider, you'd go for something like the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama at 36%. So there's a huge range in response rates. Uh HISA have done a um a load of work on if there is anything strange about the graduates that respond. There's really not enough data to show. But that is also likely to be a different effect by different, uh, uh, providers. We also know, and maybe Paul can say more about this, that certain providers ha- have been actively encouraging their students to respond to this survey in full. Other, gra- other, uh, providers have not. The last thing I wanted to say is in terms of anxiety, what I'm starting to think is that we're putting in a lot of interventions and these are timely and good interventions. Uh, around student mental health, we don't really have anything for students after they graduate, and I'm wondering what kind of support providers could uh, actually better offer alumni after they graduate, especially in the early years where everything feels difficult and it might occasionally feel like you're not really on the career path you want to be on. Is there room for providers to be doing that kind of stuff? Yes, absolutely. They um, there is—is is this something that is going to cost money? That is going to need staff to do? Yes, it is. So it is a question of uh, priorities, and if this is something that we should be funding at a national or provider level or not?
0: Can I pick up on a couple of those things? Cause, cause yes, I, please, Paul. They, they, they raise really interesting issues. So, so first of all, you know, the thing—you you, know—the differences you're pointing out between institutions is really important in the context of there's a kind of seems to be a moral panic developing about mm. the shortage of places in elite higher education and that you know that actually there aren't going to be enough enough places in the inverted commas top universities and actually those kinds of data kind of push another narrative that actually think about not the institution but the quality of the course you're doing and, a- and actually that, that shortage isn't really something to worry about if you can find a program that's important. The, s- the second thing you know is is my sense of largely what the kind of leveling up agenda has been um, in kind of policy rhetoric has been a kind of flattening out it's about saying actually individual differences don't matter. We expect the same of everyone. And, and as DK's pointed out, all that does is kind of mask inequalities. And I think, you know, those differences in people's backgrounds and how that plays out into their outcomes is something it's really important to be aware of and really important that some institutions are really skilled at taking students from certain backgrounds and helping them to be really successful and are much more skilled than more elite institutions at, at doing that and then thirdly and related I think the point about how universities and higher education institutions prepare their graduates or support their graduates into the world? You know, what is a contract post-graduation? How do we enable our graduates to make a meaningful contribution to society, not just in terms of employment, but in terms of community engagement and other things? And I think there's a really interesting piece there that can make, help universities to to become much closer to their communities if they can think about what they do with their graduates in supporting them in the early years post-graduation.
2: So we did a bit of research, and it was specifically on international students and what they expected from their career support after they graduated. And we found that actually a surprising amount of uh, graduates found or expected their institution to provide them with career support um, for you know at least five years after they had graduated. And following on from GK's point about how are we supporting students in terms of mental health and things like that, an element of that, I think is also career support and how we don't just kind of prepare students during their studies and for directly after, but maybe, you know, one, two, three, four, five years after. Are those resources still available when it comes to employability for them as well?
1: Fascinating, fascinating. Um, There's um, a lot of data to delve into uh, analysis on wonky.com. DK's done most of it. Um, We'll put all the links in the show notes if you want to uh, dive even deeper. But Let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
4: Hi, I'm Amanda Lam, and I've been working in the research innovation space for the last 20 years. When we think about innovation, we often focus on the shiny new products or technologies that can transform user experiences. However, if we are truly going to support products to realise their maximum impact and benefits, then we must first focus on the underpinning systems that support innovation. And there are so many excellent examples around the UK already. I'm specifically thinking about the research clusters and how they allow the development of a critical mass of expertise focused on common problems. We really should be capitalizing on these experiences more and building in the time and space to understand what works well, what's missing in a system and what needs to be changed. Because I think by building the right foundation and fostering the right culture to go with it, we can grow innovation systems that will enable the UK research base to be transformative both now and for the next generation of future leaders.
1: Right, the government in Westminster is out with a new bill all about renters reform and there's quite a lot of implications for students and university cities. Uh, Alexis, talk us through it.
2: So last week, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities published a white paper on how to create a fair private rental sector. It has significant implications for students because it argues that students should have the same rights as any other private renters, not something that you would have thought would be terribly controversial. Uh, So this would mean that if students, for example, wanted to leave their accommodation at two months notice, they would be allowed to do so there's also going to be a new ombudsman to help enforce tenants rights and landlords will for example have to pay back rent if accommodation isn't up to standards which all sounds pretty positive to me Uh, but landlords aren't happy because it's going to make it more difficult for them to lock students into 12-month contracts uh oh and most importantly my uh my kind of most excited about this bill thing uh is that it will be easier for students to have pets uh, in rented accommodation, not just students, everyone, um, which is both adorable and great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and there's, there's there's a lot to agree with in this uh, in this in this legislation. Um, not least, as as you said, Lexis putting students on a on a kind of same footing as uh, as everyone else. Kind of shocking that it's taken this long to get here. But there could be some unintended consequences, couldn't there, uh, DK? In terms of the supply of student housing, with this change comes in quickly as it and it's proposed to, to come in uh, for the start twenty twenty Three academic years. So that would be quite a, um, quite a, quite a quick turnaround.
3: Yeah. So, um, and, and just, 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 sorry, just, yeah.
1: just, uh, for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not, I'm not making a case for landlords here. <laughs> this is, um, I'm just pointing out the, uh, the, um, the unintended consequences, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, um, at heart, this is a market issue. It's about supply and demand. Uh, students need to have houses that they are able to rent and landlords, uh, their interest is in renting these places out, keeping them as full as possible for as long as possible, thus maximizing their income. Now, ideally, if a market was working properly in the kind of, uh, textbook level one economics, w- way that um, many people seem to believe is how markets work in that actual real life then these things would balance out students would have a choice of places to stay um, landlords would be forced to improve their properties and make pricing competitive in also to in order to ensure that they had students in their property and the world would be happy in practice we know it's not like that there are gluts and there are shortages of student housing competing on price also means a reduction in quality to the point where a home is no longer fit for habitation and it is for these reasons and many others that the department for leveling up and all of the rest of the things that they've given to michael gove to do because nobody else in government is smart enough to do them have decided to take this issue on as alexis says it's long overdue uh, so this has, is going to have a particular effect on certain cities in the UK. In particular, big universities in cities with lots of students. So these are places where there's all kinds of rented um, accommodation available to students. It's of a uh, kind of varying quality. I know each of those institutions does do a lot of work in ensuring that the kind of properties that are offered to their Uh, students are legal um, are um, of decent quality and are the kind of place that students would be happy or at least content to live in Um, because landlords as I said at the top they want to keep these places full as long as they can they generally do year-long contracts they ask students to sign up for a whole year, usually starting in September and going through the summer into the next year. So, I mean, this is something that a lot of students take advantage of, say, to stay in the city they're studying over the summer, uh, to do part-time or full-time work, or just to enjoy hanging out with their new mates. Um, the changes in this bill mean that it would be no longer possible for landlords to insist on a year long contract. Uh, students would be able to break this earlier if they wanted. I would suspect in the main this wouldn't happen. It is a hassle moving um, during the academic year if you're a student. It's not something you would do lightly. It's not something you would do unless there was a serious problem. If there is a serious problem, it seems reasonable that the landlord should either sort this out or the student should be able to move out with the minimum of fuss and only the minimum amount of notice. Um, obviously, landlords are up in arms in this. It's going to make things harder for them. They are actually going to have to be more active landlords but um, it remains to be t- seen. tiny violins, tiny
1: violins. Indeed,
3: yeah, this is Jim's tiny violins. They're going to have to be more active landlords, which they should have been being all along. Now, this is all a, um, a long way off. We're just at the proposal stage. Just, um just been a white paper published. We're getting views. From across the country and across different actors in the sector, it is important students and universities take the time to respond to the white paper. But this is definitely um, one to watch for the, the uh, future. This is long overdue, and maybe as they're doing in Scotland, we could uh, couple this with a proper look at the student accommodation sector, which is in a very strange state at the moment
1: it's kind of unusual isn't it to see anything about students in any come out of any government department that isn't dfe i mean jim often makes his point that students kind of fall through the cracks you know they're kind of othered because no one has responsibility for them and even the education department normally says well it's you know down to universities um so kind of yeah really interesting to see see anything (laughs) student related out of another government we and we track this we track this pretty closely particularly the the holes i mean Paul, what um, you know? What should the university response? Do you think be to this? I mean, it's it's obviously um, that doesn't apply to halls, but um, if students have more flexible terms, it's going to be good for them, right?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think you know, certainly in broad terms, it's very good news, and um, you know, as, as has has already been discussed that the kind of time of students being tied into long term contracts and often kind of in a big rush and a race to find somewhere to live for a year and a real pressure to find something allowing uh landlords to give kind of unreasonable contracts that that students sign so so that movement's good um and and you'd think that the that, that should that work in the, in the way intended, then that would also, um, put pressure on, on halls in terms of thinking about their offer and thinking about how they work with students. And, you know, certainly that's something for universities to take, se- you know, really seriously, because, um, for many universities, their kind of student accommodation is a major arm of their financial strategy. And um, you know what happened in the pandemic um, for a number of universities was really concerning when they when they saw that some of their student accommodation was going to be empty. I think there's also a kind of wider aspect to this because you know it's not just the rental market that's broken; the housing market as a whole is broken. And you know, in in many cities, the housing market you know is 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 kind of partly driven by um, by to let. Um and people renting to students, so so there could be a wider impact if if the rental markets um kind of made up more equitable, you know that could have a knock on effect on in terms of the housing market. And you know we, we our housing market has been a bubble um for for decades, and at some point that's going to break. And things like this might actually contribute to that in some way. Well,
2: I was just going to say I agree with everything that. Paul has said, I did also wonder thinking about this whether a higher turnover within student accommodation, either because students are staying later or leaving earlier, might affect some of the student cohesion that um, accommodation tends to create uh, between cohorts. You know you're all in the same place for the same 12 months, and that can tend to create really strong bonds. Um, and I still think that should absolutely be their right, whether they want to stay later or leave earlier, but maybe it's something for universities to be thinking about. Um, As well, in terms of how they create student belonging and cohesion.
1: Hey, you. Yes, I mean, you there. Listening to the Wonky show, sipping your chai latte in the corner of a campus cafe? Maybe it's on in one ear during a boring department meeting. Don't worry, I won't tell. Anyway, as you may know, I'm Mark Leach, Wonky's founder and editor in chief, and I'm taking a moment out of this week's show, dialing up a pacey musical bed. To ask if you fancy a bit of a change of pace. You see what I did there? You see, over here at Wonky, we're looking for a brand new news editor. It's a fresh role that works alongside our specialist HE policy editors to help keep our subscribers, readers, and listeners ahead of the HE Co. You'll be getting involved putting together this very podcast, writing our daily briefings, reporting from events around the country, and a lot more besides. No two days are the same at Wonky, and the magic is you can literally do it from wherever it suits you. Chai Latte is optional, of course. So Get in touch if you like to chat about it. I'm just at mark at wonky.com and you can find all the details at wonky.com slash jobs. Now, let's crank that music down and get back to the show. Right. All this season, we're working with the Association of University Administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hardworking HE professionals around the country. This week, we caught up with Sylvia Brandy and Mary O'Regan who discussed their work on effective and inclusive student quality forums in post-COVID HE.
3: Uh, the biggest uh, frustration and challenge is really human resources, because for uh, for uh, a number of years we have worked uh, understaffed. This means that there are core uh, duties that we have to look after. Uh, these are the quality review, all the quality review process, the development, the oversight, and obviously, projects, innovative projects like this are left uh, on the kind of, uh, on the waiting, <laughs> uh, uh, li- uh, they are on the waiting kind of, you know, for, for being realized but and we really hope that this workshop uh, will uh, be the occasion for us to gather new energy and since we have uh, increased our staffing now we, c- we can plan after uh, a few co- statutory commitment to to put this project on, on the on the making so that that's the biggest uh, challenge has been human resources and the frustration that comes f- from it
2: yeah so i suppose um, one of our top tips then would be to to engage with and um avail of Peer dialogue at the design stage, um, and I suppose to that's one of the um, you know the outputs that we want to gain from the workshop is to avail of the peer network available, um, and you know, I suppose really interact with that valuable dialogue that comes from it, um, to maintain student engagement and um, to learn from you know the, the network of quality peer professionals um that we'll be uh we'll be interacting
1: with sylvia and mary will be speaking at the aua annual conference at the university of manchester on 78th of july you can find links in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk right more legislative action uh, as the government in westminster is out with a bill of rights and we've got new research about uh what students think of free speech and they all link together uh dk's here to tell us how
3: Oh God. So it's the free speech section of the monkey podcast, which I on- honestly now feel like we should make a returning sector. Um, we should just do it every week as a little capsule of five minutes of the latest in free speech. So, uh, let's start with a polling from Happy. and looking forward to chatting to Alexis about this in a bit. But, uh, this is one of these things. If there is any. Th- any value at all in the free speech debate. It is about ensuring people have an, an understanding of the nuance of opinions and ideas held by those that they don't necessarily agree with. It's quite easy in this echo-chambery, um, Twitter-fied world to just... uh find the most extreme example of a view you disagree with and assume everybody that disagrees with you holds that view. It's not helpful, and it doesn't make for a good national debate. And it's exactly what's happened in the launch of this data. This is actually quite a nuanced set of data. Uh, I can tell you, for example, that 60% of the sample agree that um universities should not limit free speech, indeed should never limit free speech, which is completely opposed to the quote from Michelle Donnellan this morning, which is that this is like basically further evidence that students are the worst people ever and they hate free speech and they hate freedom and they hate me. Uh, so, there's a lot uh, 11, of sorry,
1: nuance. 11% 11% want conservatives banned from campus. Yes.
3: 11% point. want the conservatives uh, uh banned from campus entirely. And this is the same segments. You know, uh the big tension in this to me is the old classic freedom of speech freedom from harm. Students, if I can characterize them from this survey, it, they are in favor of freedom of speech but they do not think it is worth um, risking discriminating against their peers or hate speech against their peers in order to get there. So there is no free speech absolutists in the uh, Toby Young mould here, uh, but there are also none of the trembling snowflakes of popular. Imagination, neither of these things exist outside of toby young's head, and if we can all get out of toby young's head, I think we're all going to be much better off
1: alexis um so this is a really interesting poll out, out of happy this week um and I think is it's is part of this that so students are more likely now to support things like no platform policies where it helps uh, make campus a more kind of inclusive and, and safe place and more and they're able to speak out better can you can you see why michelle donnan has jumped on that to use it as an example of why students want to shut down debates it's a it's a weird circular uh kind of world we're living in isn't it or circular arguments
2: yeah i think i think it is really interesting i mean what is so interesting about this report is that Because we're asking the same questions that we did in 2016, it means that the data is largely comparable and we can really trace how student attitudes and cultural attitudes maybe as well have shifted during that period. And look, there is the obvious potential for this report to be interpreted by some as evidence of students becoming more intolerant, or more closed minded. But I think there's actually a really positive story to be told here about students becoming more sensitive to what their more marginalized peers might be going through. Um, For Mm. example, that 79% of students believe students who feel threatened should always have their demands for safety respected. That sounds like a good thing to me, right? I think, you know, we don't want students to feel threatened. We want them to feel safe Um, or that 61%. Say, um, when in doubt, the university should ensure students are protected from discrimination. We think discrimination is a bad thing, right? So this this is good that our students are sensitive to that. Uh, so I, I actually think there is a really positive story about students becoming aware of what their peers might be going through to be told here.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I I tend to agree with you. And I think that, um I guess it's not surprising. So a lot of these findings anyone that you know that that works in, in universities will kind of recognise where students' attitudes um generally are. And that and it seems it's kind of a shame, isn't it, DK, that it's kind of been spun as a as kind of a negative.
3: Yeah, there's so much nuance, as I say, in here. I mean, I've got a few of the responses charted on uh, Tableau on the site this morning, if you want to take a look at that. Uh, this is a service I could also offer to HEPI for a small fee, I imagine. So just to pick another couple at, um, just over 40% of students feel like a lot of student societies today are overly sensitive. So that's a fascinating finding to quite an interesting uh, question. This is students talking about their perception of other students. So you recall that like, if you're asked about yourself, you're likely to be more positive about your attitudes. But if you're asked about other attitudes held by other groups of people, then you're more likely to be negative, which is an effect that has been used several times in this debate already. So there is an, an a, um, a feeling among some students that uh, there is um, a sense that some of this may have gone too far. The default answers are the median answer, and that's median as in the sense of the middle answer as opposed to the sense used by the Department of Transport this morning um, the media answer is three uh, students overall neither agree nor disagree so that also almost suggests to me that this isn't something that they've thought a lot about. If you ask students something that's framed in the heroic mode so like the best way to fight prejudice is to debate it rather than ban it. That is uh, what uh, polling professionals would call a leading question in that you obviously want to be the kind of person that fights prejudice. And the best way is clearly the first one and not the second one. So we see here uh, 54% of students agree with that and a further 33% are in the middle because they're not sure about these things. Uh, we, I don't think it's fair to talk about a single student view. This government is guilty in a lot of places of a kind of over-the-top structuralism in which large groups of people are all deemed to hold exactly the same view. It's exactly the opposite of what a good freedom of speech policy should be allowing us to express, that students as a group, academics as a group, Anybody else as a group, with the possible exception of a certain group of commentators, whose name I shall not mention, uh, have a plurality of opinions on all kinds of different things. And this is what makes things interesting. This is exactly what students should be um exposed to and enjoying immensely as a part of their university experience we can all get behind that but if we're starting painting all students as just having one view just having one opinion and then maybe being a few outliers that we like and will eventually get highly paid jobs in think tanks um we are doing our students short here. Uh, we need more nuance in this debate urgently. The poll is a good poll, although I had to laugh a little bit about the decision to ask a bunch of undergraduate students how they voted in the last election when two-thirds of them were not eligible to vote.
1: Paul, I, I ask everyone that works in university this question, but I mean, you know, how high on the kind of agenda, on the kind of the the, the, the your know, university's bandwidth is the question of free speech?
0: um yeah it, it, it's definitely something that's discussed regularly and i think what what comes across from this survey is is not not only as dk says the students not have one voice there's not one correct position to take about free speech i think one of the really unhelpful points of this debate are as if free speech is all or nothing and if there's an as if there's an absolutely right answer if only we can find it, you know, whereas my sense is that what universities need to do as communities is to discuss and develop principles by which they make decisions in relation to, to, to free speech, you know, by which they agree what's acceptable for their community and recognizing that these will develop over time, that you don't just have one set of principles that you always follow. With issues of free speech, there's many different competing priorities. And the only way to do that fairly is for the institution to discuss and debate it and to move forward in a clearer way as possible about what we as a community think is acceptable and recognising that that will change. I certainly don't think the government legislating about it. Helps um to clarify the issue, and again, it kind of presents it in in an all or nothing way. The other thing I think slightly unhelpful about about the survey, but also about the government's position on it, is the elision of academic freedom and freedom of speech. They're two completely different issues, and bringing them together in this way, you know, clearly there are some issues of freedom of speech that do relate to academic freedom, but really. You know, I, I would treat them separately because they because they're about different things and there's different priorities at stake.
1: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of government legislation, we have obviously been talking a lot about the the free speech bill going through Parliament at the moment, and we we, we talked about the latest progress on that uh, on the show last week. But DK, there's there's also a uh, proposed bill of rights from the government, isn't there, that re- replaced the um, human rights legislation of uh, of the past, um, and there's some funny kind of contradictions between the two, right?
3: It's all wonderful, as I'm sure you can imagine. The Bill of Rights Bill, to give it its full and ludicrous title... Is an attempt to play into the corner of opinion that thinks that we should leave the, Eurovi- the um, European Convention on Human Rights. We're not you going said to the leave. The
1: Eurovision Song Contest, right there. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we should leave that as well, but that's another story. <laughs> um, the European Convention on Human Rights, we're not going to leave that. That's still going to be the case. What the bill actually does is contradict the EHRC in numerous occasions. It means the government are going to be found guilty of being in breach of international human rights law more often, which is a great look for certain parts of the base. Uh, So although there's not a huge amount in the bill directly on um, universities, there is an idea that a court must give great weight, which I'm assured might or might not be an actual legal term, to the importance of protecting the right to freedom of speech against other things. There are exceptions to this. The exceptions are largely when you are doing something that the government does not like. And uh, for instance, something to do with the the um right you may have to remain in the United Kingdom or stuff like that, uh, in which case you do not have this great weight that is going to be weighed against you. Um, as Paul points out, all this really does is complicate things. There's been a whole swath of legislation and policy announcements in recent weeks and months that are completely unworkable on even a fundamental level. Uh, now, we're recording this on Thursday morning before we have the results of two very interesting um, by-elections. But this does feel like the activity of a government that knows it's not going to have to carry through a lot of these things. Um, so, um, in terms of repealing Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, or indeed any sections of the Human Rights Act, it, the Act is repealed in its entirety. Um We don't really know what that means. Um, It's great news for lawyers. uh, It's great news for those that like to kind of uh, puzzle out these legislative complexities um, in terms of actually helping people to support the right of free speech where they have it and to support the freedom of harm that comes with that free speech. Um, It's just going to make everything a load harder.
1: So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes and on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Walkie Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So, thanks very much to Paul, DK and Alexis, and everyone at Team Wonky to help us make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky.